Hey everybody, welcome to Revved Up for Sunday. We are the clergy of St. Mark's Episcopal Church in New Canaan, Connecticut. I'm Peter Walsh. I'm Elizabeth Garnsey. I'm Justin Crisp. As so many of you know, we take a look at the gospel for this coming Sunday. And this coming Sunday, we have the greatest appendix of all time. <laughs> Let's take a look at it. John 21, 1 through 19. Jesus showed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he showed himself in this way. Gathered there together with Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, you have no fish, have you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because there were so many fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on some clothes, for he was naked, and he jumped into the sea. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, only about a hundred yards off. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, Who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter felt hurt because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. 
the gospel of the Lord. Woo! So you often begin with some uh, context about uh, the community, the Johannine community, where this is being written. And as I said at the outset, we have the greatest appendix mm-hmm. of all time. You mm-hmm. want to say a word about yeah. appendices, any of you? Or do you want to take mm-hmm. a pass on that and move right into the text further and start to plunge into what's happening? Mm-hmm. Very complex, very meaningful text here. Well, I think that's the thing. I think in John, I mean, we might well, you named it so quickly, we could just frame that uh, as a way of reading this text that has to do with the Johannine community, that maybe there was some... Um, wavering creeping in or apostasy or like you know doubt of peter's leadership some issue if we don't get the rest of the passage but at the end of this chapter there's a mention of the disciple jesus loved and the kind of death he would die so we get mention of both peter's impending death and this other disciple mm-hmm. and so maybe this is written after they had died and they had to kind of shore up their legacy and authority and um you know reassure people that this was something jesus saw coming and it was to glorify god and you know i don't know there there's something that suggests the community needed a a, a, this told and we'll as we talk about the text we'll see what needed to be told i think yeah so that's that's my briefest thought on it it's good yeah but it's rich, rich, rich. What do you think? Uh, yeah, it is. I think you're. I think you're right. I think there are two different ways to interpret appendices. Um, one is that you know it's the um, it's an add-on to intervene in a in a something. Um, as you were saying here, we get the shoring up of both John's authority. John is the one who uh, the the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, "It is the Lord." John is the one who's like, "Ah, it's Jesus." So that reinforces his authority in some sense, and then it. It, it reinforces Peter's authority here. Uh, you have the undoing of the threefold denial through the threefold confession. Uh, you've got, um, you know, you've got Jesus uh, pointing towards his martyrdom, Peter's martyrdom. So again, it could have been consoling to the community and so on. So I think the appendix idea, it could be an intervention. I think in a certain sense, it, it was an intervention in the concrete Johannine community. Uh, out of which this text comes. Another way, the second way I think to interpret the appendix is actually like the lens through which you read the whole rest of the work. (laughs) And uh, like if you started at the end and then you went to the beginning, and it's interesting how so many different aspects of uh, the gospel according to John come to the fore here. I mean, I was noting at the beginning the the night and day Mm, imagery, right? The light and darkness imagery, which is a... uh, which is a light motif. It's a through line through the entire gospel. You've got, you know, so the, the, the disciples are out on the boat and uh, it's night and they catch nothing. But then the sun comes up and then Jesus appears to them. They, uh, you know, they catch something, etc. You have uh, Jesus feeding them. You've got the whole bread of life discourse in, in John, which is so important to the John's theological vision. Uh, and, and so on. And so in a certain way, this is like a gathering up of all of the strands, and I think it culminates in this call, follow me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in the discourse between between Peter 
and Jesus, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Et cetera, which I know we're going to, we're going to talk about. I mean, I think it could be both, the appendix can be both of those mm-hmm. things at the you same time. You almost get time. the feeling the author woke up in the middle of the night when he thought he'd finished and thought, oh, I have one more chapter I need to add. Because <laughs> totally. it, it fits, and some suggest it's not the same style or the vocabulary as the rest of the book, but, you know, it, it works well, as you say, there's so many points that it that complement the rest of the gospel, yeah. com- complete it in many ways. For theological nerds out there, I totally agree with Father Peter here that this is the world's greatest appendix. It's way better than the appendix to Friedrich Schleiermacher's Glaubenslehre or the Christian faith. That appendix on Don't the Trinity. Pff, who cares? <laughs> way better. Way better than Schleiermacher for anybody out there who likes 19th century Germans. Is uh, a famous appendix where he, he relegates the doctrine of the Trinity to the very end of the work. Uh, apparently to show how much he cares about the Trinity, which may be very little. <laughs> this is not, I don't think this is what's going on here. This is stuff that the Johannine community really cares about, right? It's not at the end because it's unimportant. Um, how, whatever purpose of the, uh, of the appendix mm-hmm. we determine. Um, yeah, so uh, I, when I was in college, I studied intellectual history and did a lot with Schleiermacher, but missed the appendix thing that you're talking about there. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, when you guys talk, I don't know anything. As I said uh, off the screen at one point, these guys talking all this stuff, and I know about the Phoenix Suns, uh, which I do know a lot about. Uh, I want to uh, come back here a little bit. So uh, I think that the issue have, we have here, in case uh, those of you who are listening don't know, uh, chapter 20 uh, of the Gospel, which we did a podcast on, finishes with with the culmination of mm-hmm. the purpose of the book, and then all of a sudden we have chapter 21. So I think the issue here is not is not that this is an afterthought, it's just that we have two Hallelujah Choruses. Mm. I think that's what we have here. We have the Hallelujah Chorus followed by the Hallelujah Chorus, and so now we suddenly don't quite know what to do with it because we're only good for one <laughs> Hallelujah Chorus. Mm. But I personally am good for two mm. Hallelujah Choruses, so I have no mm. issue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, as these guys know, this is this, uh, my favorite passage here, we might as well get to that, uh, is the conversation uh, between Jesus and Peter at the charcoal fire. And just to set the context for everybody, so on Thursday night, uh, the Maundy Thursday night, uh, Peter is uh, at Caiaphas's house, right, the, the Church of Galicantu, that's the Church of the Cock Crows, uh, and he is in the courtyard, the, the beloved disciple uh, uh, who is re- referenced in all of this, uh, clearly knew the high priest, was able to get into the courtyard and went and got Peter to bring Peter into the courtyard and why Peter's in the courtyard. They, they make a charcoal fire because mm-hmm. it is cold and it is around that mm-hmm. charcoal fire that uh, what is, is oftentimes known as the servant girl in the way we, mm-hmm. we do our, uh, our reading of the Passion says to him, certainly, certainly this guy is a Galilean. Certainly mm-hmm. you are a Galilean. And you know he would get mm-hmm. into the Peter's three denials right. here and it takes place around a charcoal <clears throat> fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then depending, each of the, the scriptures each of the Gospels has a slightly different take on Peter's reaction, but weeping bitterly uh, in Mark is really mm-hmm. one we love to love. To love. Yeah. And now we have, of course, Peter's rehabilitation around a charcoal fire, not at night, as you pointed out, uh, but at daybreak. Mm-hmm. The, uh, those who listen to my four-and-a-half-hour Easter sermon will remember uh, that it was about dawn and dawning. And so here we have, with dawn, uh, the dawning of the resurrected Christ who shows himself, mm-hmm. reveals himself. This is a revelation, revelatory moment. And then we have these, these the, the threefold questions, which mm-hmm. Peter's rehabilitation. But it, 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 to me, the, the, the part about it that, uh, it, it, that Peter 
is brokenhearted here. Mm -hmm. This is my favorite part, as Peter is literally cut to the core mm -hmm. in every possible way. Our translation, Peter felt hurt, is, is, is too wimpy, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. This should say, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the, it really, the previous translations of Peter was grieved. I mean, this, mm -hmm. he is grieved in this question. Mm -hmm. He is dying. He is dying on the third question. He is dying. Mm -hmm. He is literally dying here. And not felt hurt. I feel hurt when people say, you know, Peter, I didn't, your sermon was too long. I feel Peter felt hurt. <laughs> he, Peter is dying here. My sermon was too long. Peter is dying here. Uh, and, and, and that he is not only dying, but he's then, you know, he's rehabilitated and he's commissioned. And so mm -hmm. this makes Peter the king of love. Mm -hmm. Okay. John, mm -hmm. we get into John. Oh, well. So John, John is the king of discipleship. Mm. John is always shown mm -hmm. to be the king of discipleship. And in, let's just face it, John wrote the book, or John, uh, that, that unnamed guy, he didn't write the book. Okay, I'm going to agree with you on that. I'm not Excuse sure me. it's John either. We keep calling him John. Yes, okay, so let me back way up. Thank you. That's really good clarification. The one who wrote the book, mm -hmm. who we call the disciple, yeah, mm -hmm. take away the John, the John portion, yeah. um, mm -hmm. it is clearly written so that uh, if you've ever seen one of those running races, I mean, when we see the Olympics and they win by like a millisecond, John always wins by a millisecond. Mm. here it always wins mm -hmm. and even in the death peter is crucified that's what mm -hmm. it means that's a technical term to say he stretched out his hands that means you're gonna that's crucifixion right. um and but john has an ambiguous he might not die until the, the parousia mm -hmm. kind of thing and then mm -hmm. jesus says mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. that is a definite divine whatever but um mm -hmm. so uh, you know to me this is a story about love and, yeah. uh, and it is commissioning too but it's, it's a story about love yeah. that's just the, love. the footnote yeah. about the beloved disciple i'm not trying to like correct my boss i just have a, there's a school of thought that um and i know you both have read this or know it that that the beloved disciple is a, a placeholder for you know all, all the disciples that jesus loves us and you know that he's not named purposely because he's the one that represents all this community that are left to continue the, the message and um so, you know, it's just a, it's helpful, I think, as an open-ended question to put our, insert ourselves into the scene whenever mm -hmm. he's there and, um, you know, be, be, be allowed to play with it a little bit. Sure. And 100%. he's never named. Like, even, even here, he's not named. He could be one of the sons of Zebedee. He could be two of others of his disciples. Um, you know, why not bother naming them? It's such a big that is event. a funny thing that they get everybody gets so, a name and it's like, and there's these two other there's these two other dudes. <laughs> yeah, you right. know, I'm like, what? Well, they don't, you know, they yeah. don't get a name. I like so, those two dudes. Yeah, yeah, you never. It's just completely open ended. And yeah, um, I agree with that. So, and yeah, uh, Raymond Brown says that, and so right. that's where I got it. But I'm, I just mm, like, yeah. I like that idea that it could be, could be us, like the one in Mark who runs away naked. You know, right? But, yeah. Anyway, that, yeah. Yes, there's no no doubt. I, I agree with all that. I use John as a shorthand way of talking uh -huh. about this, but I, I agree yeah. with you. It's much more nuanced than that, and it, it's like likely John. You know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, beautiful. And I'm sure you, the the words for love too. We lose. We always lose stuff in John in mm -hmm. the English translation because he was he's he's perfect. He perfected that double and triple entendre use of words. You know, mm -hmm. um, with Nicodemus, he does it. Famously, and here he he does it with it's not double entendre here, but he uses the word for agape, you know, the the divine love with him, with Simon, with Peter, the first two questions, and Peter answers in filio, you know, yes, I I want to be your friend or whatever, you know, that kind of love, and Jesus the third time finally acquiesces to Peter's filio and says, do you filio me, 
Mm. And Peter says yes. And so I think some say that that's a way of um, Jesus meeting Peter where he is and, um, mm. you know, awakening love in him at the level he's prepared, that he's ready for. Yeah. And then mm. it can grow, but he's gracious, you know, but he, he holds out the higher form yeah i don't i don't agree mm. with that i'll just say it's just the after, that's in the text that's all i know but the if you look at the yeah. text i mean i read i read i just spent four hours uh and two trans country flights reading about this exact passage uh-huh. uh I and <laughs> and it is in the text but what's okay. in the text is that they use the words interchangeably uh mm. and so it's uh so there's been a uh-huh. i mean augustine uh, and Boltmont all through have weighed in on this. But Raymond Brown says, uh, and a lot, most of the other biblical scholars nowadays say that's mm-hmm. actually a false, huh. that's a false sign. It's in that, my Nestle uh, Greek Bible. That, oh no, the words are there, <laughs> but it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit, they're, they're just used interchangeably. I see, what you mean. see the, okay. the words are there, but they're not, they don't mean what okay. they say. So if you took those words in another context, you would have, you would have divine love and then you'd have brotherly love, sure. like considerably brotherly love. Yeah. But mm-hmm. in other words, this is, what they're saying is in John's gospel and in Johann writing, those are just used interchangeably. So there is not, this is not to be interpreted that Jesus is meeting Peter where he is. This is Mm -hmm. just to say that they're using different words. uh, And, and that's where the, you know, most of the commentators uh, Mm -hmm. are coming down to say, don't overread. Don't over Greek word this. This is just about. We shouldn't over Greek. I just think in John, it's a particular device he uses a lot to trick, to sort of flip words to the... Well, to I was going to go that way in the yeah. sermon that's unwritten because that was my Easter sermon, but yeah. all this stuff was saying, yeah. no, it's, it's just not there. <clears throat> right, and it yeah, doesn't need to be there. It's, it stands as it is in English. I mean, I, it's gorgeous, and the way it mirrors the denials and lets mm. Peter walk back his denials is... That's, that's a message enough <laughs> for the ages, yeah. but... Um, so what I love about this exchange between Peter and Jesus is that this is Peter repairing his relationship with Jesus. And he's doing it at Jesus's initiative. And I think by the power of Jesus's own love, which is the way that I think all of our relationships with Jesus work. We're all, we're all Peter at some point. Um, we're all Peter all of the time, depending on who we are, especially if our name's Peter. Uh, <laughs> One place where I'm like, I don't know if I'm Peter. One of the wildest moments of this whole passage is when um, he puts on his clothes in order to go swimming. All right. I love that. Right. Now, I, I don't actually know enough about first century bathing practices and fishing practices, etc., to know like whether it would be completely normal for him to be naked on the boat and then to put on his clothes to jump into the water. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a culturally acceptable thing to do. But it, if, if not... If it sounds as weird as it would as it does in the reading of the twenty first century, it's another example of Peter being head over heels in love with mm-hmm. Jesus, right? And again, he's like this over and over. He's literally head over. He dives in exactly. Thanks for the pun. That's I, I, the word. That's like the 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 constant uh, read of that passage. But yeah. I have to think that Peter has shame. Mm. And he is that why he's jumping? puts on his clothes, hides himself, for he was naked, and jumps into the sea. And the <laughs> oh, last wow. time you hear this is in Genesis, when Adam and Eve hide themselves because oh, they were good. naked, and that's God good. is coming for them. And or he's looking for them in the garden. And so um, here, 
they, you know, he's, he's maybe hiding in, in a panic, like it's Jesus and I've denied him and what's going to happen? Mm. And he, you know, what can he do? Put on his clothes and jump into the sea, oh, wow. you know, while the boat's on the way to shore. And you don't know if he's just going to hide there in the water for a while. It doesn't say and swam to shore, you know? So mm. I just, I just have mm. to question that a little bit, mm. but I, it is, makes more sense, of course, that he's madly excited and in love with Jesus. But, um, you know, there's a possibility because I also think in John there's that theme of the recreation and the whole undoing of the mm. or recreation yeah, of right. Eden and there's a lot of echoes. Yeah, mm. love love the Hebrew uh, scripture allusions there. Mm. So I, I actually have a lot to say about Peter's nakedness too. Mm. But you're na- you're in a totally different place than I was, mm. and uh, and you're in a somewhat different place than I am. So. Uh, I, you know, I mean, the Greek word says naked, but in the context, these guys, the fishermen um, fished in loincloths, mm-hmm. right? So right. he wasn't actually naked. That's he had a loincloth on. He didn't have his daily clothes on. He had his yeah. work clothes on. Uh, and because there, there's no way these guys were, the Hebrew men were working naked. It would have been against the sensibilities of their communities. Mm-hmm. But the Greek word goes back to the... Uh, uh, like gymnasium, it's where we get the word gymnasium. Yeah. And so when the, this is where you really got to keep sticking with this podcast because you're going to hear something you really need to know. So when the men competed <laughs> in ancient Greece, they competed nakedly. So the, the marathon or, I mean, the, the, or the, the wrestlers, and they practiced for their games at the gymnasium, which comes mm-hmm. from the word naked because they were naked when they practiced. Mm-hmm. But so we get, we get a Greekism thrown into a Hebrew story mm-hmm. uh, where he is wearing... He's wearing a loincloth uh, to do his work or a, a frock or something, something that's mm-hmm. light but not his daily clothes. And so that when he says he puts his clothes on, mm-hmm. you know, he throws over uh, um, what we would almost look like a, uh, like a surplus mm-hmm. and girds it with a belt, right? So they would mm-hmm. wear the surplus with a belt. So what he does mm-hmm. is he puts on his outer garment and, and then girds it with a belt and then dives in the water head mm-hmm. over heels uh, to, to swim in. So all these, that's how all the men fished. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that, so he's not literally naked. It's this, this not likely. Yeah, that was my not suspicion. Not it's a lot less fun to read this passage with eighth graders in that particular way to say, oh yeah, 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 he's in his work clothes and he's changing into his regular clothes. I had the suspicion. I had a suspicion that's the, the truth. Thing is, but the it's, thing is good. It, oh, totally. But particularly when you get into the garden thing. Oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. I'll just say when you read it in youth group, that's what the people want to hear, right? They want to hear the guys doing some really crazy stuff, even if it was completely yeah. normal in the first century. <laughs> Interesting right. about the Olympics too. No need to over Greekify this. Oh yeah, right. Uh, well, speaking of over Greekifying, <laughs> so I'm I'm fascinated. By the conversation you guys were having about the Greek terms, I'm really interested in like the in um, in uh, like Raymond Brown, one of the world's greatest historical critics of of the Bible. Um, uh, you know what Brown says about uh, the beloved disciple, etc. You know, I think that one of the interesting things about our podcast together is that we all bring different things to the scriptures, and I, I feel that in certain ways, I don't read the scriptures as an historical document. I read the scriptures the way that um, the Anglican divine of the 16th century, Richard Hooker, said to read the scriptures, which is to read the scriptures through the tradition by the powers of our of our interpretation, uh, which he called reason. We think reason is like, oh, you know, I'm going to go sit and do some math problems or something like that. He didn't think about it that way. He's like, it's just our powers of interpretation, but we're reading the scriptures through the tradition. So the first thing that I always do is I, I don't actually always jump first to the historical context, even though I, I, I'm fascinated by all of that. And I think it's incredibly valuable. But my first go is, what have Christians said about this 
over 2,000 years. And that's why the fact that the beloved disciple has been said by so many Christians over so many years to be John, I'm like, yeah, check. And that's just my, that's my own particular, that, that's the way that I, that's the way that I, I come at all of the scriptures. One thing that I found when I was looking at this through the lens of the early church fathers was Augustine writes an incredibly trippy commentary on this passage. And it has some of the wildest numerology I have ever read. Okay, so the ancients, right, they were pre-modern people were incredibly into numbers. And so he says that he, Augustine loves the fact that there are 153 fish. Because yeah. he says that 153 is 50 times 3 plus 3. <laughs> and because it's 50 times 3 plus 3, you have three 50s and then a 3 at the end of it to like give you the clue that there needs to be three somethings and there are three 50s. It's a sign of the Trinity. <laughs> what does I mean, the 50 so, mean? Uh, yeah, well, see, I don't, I, uh, he's got a thing about that because 50, it's like seven times, I think it's seven times seven plus something else. And he makes a something of that. One. I mean, his math, yeah, yeah yes, plus one. Uh, that's, yes, seven times seven plus one. And the one's Charlie, got a something watching? there. Uh <laughs> I know, and the seven is supposed to represent the seven sacraments, uh, which are the seven ways in which God incorporates people into the church, oh, wow. and so on and so forth. I mean, and he that's just where the math begins, okay? He's got a whole paragraph where it's just number, 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 number. And my wife, Jewel, loves this stuff. I can't keep up with it. And I'm like, this is just crazy because it's not the way that I think. It's not the way that we think now. But the, the point is that the... Um, uh, the early church fathers saw all of these passages as rich with symbolism. And the thing which is trippy, but which um, uh, which I make, I would want to make more of than just like, you know, well, 153 is a sign of the Trinity or something like that, is um, Augustine says that the disciples pulling up, casting their nets onto the right side of the boat and pulling up all of these fish is a symbol, a sign, a mystery, an icon of... The resurrection of the dead. Oh wow! And so this is wow. this is so he's he's he totally bypasses the appendix question. Augustine doesn't care. Augustine thinks this story is at the end of the gospel because it's the end of time. <laughs> Spiritually, oh, it's depicting oh, the end of time. Wow, interesting. And wow. the thing, so he he makes a lot of that. He contrasts it with other versions of fishing stories. Right, Jesus uh, being. Uh, you know, cast your nets uh, and I'll make you fishers of men, that kind of thing. In Luke and in Matthew, where it doesn't specify which side of the boat. Jesus doesn't specify which side of the boat they're supposed to let down their nets on. Jesus here says, put your nets on the right side of the boat. Uh, no offense to my father who's left-handed, uh, but, you know, for Augustine, right is good and left is bad. Uh, and so he says that here, this is the elect being resurrected as opposed to the reprobate or the damned, right? And they're on the other side of the boat. And so I don't want to make of this passage what Augustine's made of it, right? I could read through the tradition, but there's tradition after Augustine and tradition other than Augustine, which point in different directions than that mm -hmm. kind of interpretation. But I will say I love the idea that this is an image of the life of the world to come because the disciples are surprised by it, I think. And I like to think that we will all be surprised in a beautiful way at the life of the world to come. Uh, this, the, 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 uh, the, the, the raising up of the fish takes place by Jesus' initiative. 
The disciples are given a role in it, though. The disciples, it's their job to haul these fish in. They have to cast the net, right? The church casts the net. They bring it back up. So there's some kind of human cooperation with the coming of the kingdom. And it's so surprising to them that John, or the beloved disciple, whoever, recognizes Jesus in that moment and says, it's the Lord. That it's as though the, 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 the miracle happens, and then they're like, Oh my gosh, it must be Jesus. It must be Jesus. And to that point, they don't, they don't recognize him. It's surprising to the life of the world to come. It's surprising to us in a way that it's like, oh my gosh, it must be Jesus. We say it's too good to be true. And I think this is an example of, in the life of the world to come, it's so good that it has to be true. I think that's, a, that's what I would make of Augustine's crazy interpretation of that section. Interesting. Yeah. Do you, do you have a comment about about that or about numerology and all the numbers here? Uh, I mean, there's no, I, you know I mean, there's there's a lot of theories on this number. Yeah, thing it's incredible. Here. Augustine uh, was force. I mean, that's amazing. But I, I, the I numerology would just is just weird. On, uh, the life of the world to come, I think, uh, is you know was very critical to that early church, and you know that they, they thought it was the afterlife. I think mm-hmm. so. I think also, I think for the community, sorry to go back to historically, but I, yeah, I feel yeah. like the community reading it was the life here and now was the ushered in kingdom that they were responsible to um, carry forward and grow. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, um, this idea of, of Peter's death, when you grow old, someone will stretch out your hands and, and fasten, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. Mm-hmm. Um, some more current interpreters suggest that this is the kind of spiritual death we all have to die mm. in order to glorify God. That, yeah. you know, our life is not ours alone. And when we hand ourselves over to the service of God and to the purpose of Jesus coming into the world, which was to reconcile all things to God and forgive, um, that is a death its own because we can no longer um, separate who's worthy and who isn't that mm-hmm. left from the right. And there are no damned, you know. So with Jesus building his charcoal fire, the first charcoal fire was built by police and slaves mm-hmm. and or servants. And um, they were there warming themselves in the cold of night on the way to death, on the way to Jesus' death. And here's Jesus kindling a the second charcoal fire in John, like you said, and he's offering them this generous breakfast. It's daytime. He's gathering them around to to reconcile them and forgive them and to tell them that message that, you know, your life is not your own. Mm-hmm. And and giving them this love teaching and, and reconciliation. And then they can experience Jesus among them they don't recognize him. They see him as a stranger at first. And maybe part of the resurrection is, you know, seeing Jesus in the stranger, mm-hmm. experiencing Jesus there, mm-hmm. you know, for, for, you know, forgiving. Yeah. Forgiving is a placeholder for a bigger conversation. But, you know, yeah. bringing, letting everyone out of the hole they're in and letting everyone have a second chance. And, you know, there's something just so current right now about it in our lives. We all have this challenge day by day mm-hmm. to live this message of the resurrection. Mm-hmm. So it is both maybe the world to come, but I think it's also so rich for right now. And I wouldn't want to relegate it only in you're not, but 
some of those writers of the early centuries feel I feel mm-hmm. like they're waiting for heaven and you know can, when sure. can we get out of here yeah um so I don't I don't I want to just claim a place for an, in the conversation for the right now totally challenge yeah I mean this is just totally. goes to show how rich the scriptures are as yeah. a as a, a a fountain from which we all drink in in different ways yeah. uh, and and um, I mean I named my kid after Augustine so I'm a great fan of Augustine but that you know that and and I knew about his locking on the 153 <laughs> uh you know f- there's also other illusions about what is that net mm-hmm. and uh the net uh i mean the way the world is put together the hebraic world is put together is the as you know it's the heavens and it's the firmament it's the earth and then below it is the water the water mm-hmm. i mean the, all that sits on water all the firmament mm-hmm. and and that the waters are places of chaos and then mm-hmm. through times the fish and the water become the Gentiles, the chaotic place of the Gentiles. And so for some, the pulling up of the net is oh, the wow. pulling, pulling up, up of the Gentiles, Gentiles yeah. and, and the catching of the Gentiles. And that the commission to Peter here mm. is a commission of Peter as shepherd. Mm. And we get fish and shepherd. We got two mm. animals going on in here. So mm-hmm. we have imagery of, we have imagery of, of fish. And we have imagery of shepherd, of sheep. Mm-hmm. And so Peter is to care for the fish as the shepherd, so to speak, mm-hmm. here. And that uh, in the in you know we had disagreement over the use of those <laughs> Greek words. Well, there's also different Greek words here uh, for shepherd for shepherding, and those Greek words have to do with you know feeding them. Literally, the one who feeds the lambs, and also the one who has mm-hmm. authority over the lambs and cares for the lambs and looks out for them, and then gives in this case his life for the lamb. Right. Mm-hmm. This is where Jesus, when Jesus says back to the Good Shepherd passage uh, to give your life for it. So there's a, there's a whole shepherding thing and a whole fish thing here mm-hmm. that is all, all uh, with allusions to the Hebrew Scriptures, like you were alluding the nakedness mm-hmm. to the Hebrew Scriptures. So with Hebrew scriptural eyes, these fish uh, could well be Gentiles, and the, the, the shepherding thing could be Peter as the vicar of Christ. I'm using that really in quotation marks because I'm not trying to claim Peter as... As pope, as here, first pope, yeah. as first pope, or any of that. I'm not doing that at all. Um, though, the, though, a lot of this passage, as you know, has been used in part by the Vatican in the 1880s to 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 try to claim the primacy of of Peter. Yep. And then they then they sort of backed away from it because it was this. We don't get exactly that Peter here has authority over mm-hmm. the other disciples mm-hmm. in the passage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I clearly was on that's that plane, right. that plane for right. too long. I read so much about this passage <laughs> <laughs> across the country. No, 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 that's anyway, crazy. Yeah. It's yes, it's so, so super full of possibility in this. I want to bring up just one more, yeah. just one more thing, which Please. I think um, uh, it's my favorite thing about the story, actually, um, is the fact that they have breakfast. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, this comes... Later than Jesus appearing to the to the two on the road to Emmaus, where they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, but here again, it's Jesus breaking bread with people, and it, Jesus is always breaking bread with people. Uh, it, it would seem to be a part of his, to the extent that we have access to the historical Jesus. It seems to be uh, something that the historical Jesus really cared about was food, mm-hmm. um, mm, and nice. to the extent that Jesus is both divine and human, I think that Jesus's humanity is a revelation of God's own character, and so that means that if Jesus liked food, God likes food, and if Jesus <laughs> likes breakfast, God likes breakfast. So not to be cute, <laughs> but I think breakfast is God's favorite meal. 
this this podcast is never going to end. Yeah. No, no, keep going. No, no, stop. This is a real revelation. This is a real revelation. Well, this is a thought I never heard before. It, I want you to unpack that a little bit here. Is Jesus attending to the disciples' needs, right? To their to their bodily and to their spiritual needs, which is the way that meals work, right? Meals feed us both spiritually and physically. And there's something about that which I believe God loves. I think there's a reason why the life of the world to come in the book of Revelation is depicted as a wedding banquet, not just in Revelation, but everywhere else. You know, it's a it's a party, but it's it's a party at which people eat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in the Gospel of John, you know, you get the bread of life discourse where Jesus says, I am the true bread that comes from heaven. And so he, he's comparing himself, comparing the intervention which he is making spiritually in the in the world, the light shining in the darkness uh, that he is from the, as it said in John's prologue, to eating and to feeding. And here you have, here you have, this, this seems to be what Jesus wants to do with these people. Jesus appears to them while they're fishing and then makes breakfast for them using the fish that they've caught. Mm-hmm. And I think it says a lot about God. and says a lot about what God loves most about God's creation. I'm not saying that God doesn't love everything, but I like to think that God loves, you know, loves a really, really, really good French toast more than God loves mosquitoes. That's a controversial theological statement. I'd have to unpack that too and think about it. But um, I think this shows us what, in Jesus' ministry, it shows us the kinds of things, the kinds of people, the kinds of actions, the kinds of loves toward which God, God's self tends. And I think I, I, mm-hmm. as somebody who loves, who loves food, I love that God loves food. Mm-hmm. Jesus loved to eat. He had a lot of dinner too, I have to say. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Lunch, he fed people on the countryside, the hills. Maybe that was lunch. Mm. But I agree with you. Everything centers on a meal. He gave us a meal to remember him by. So what could mm-hmm. what could say more? You know, I think you're right. It's the it's the nourishment of food that embodies his presence and yeah, you know, the feeding. That's beautifully said, Justin. I, I agree with you. I agree with you. Let the record show. <laughs> That's a miracle. <laughs> well, it I, must be the Lord. Uh, uh, okay. so, <laughs> I, I know we have to wrap this up, but Justin, the, the God's favorite meal is breakfast. Is, is that, that's the I had to version. get I had to I had to get I, Rob I, Schwartz something to you know I, something to title so, this thing. Okay, so then since Elizabeth and I are disagreeing about Greek usage uh, in in this passage, I'm going to go one more on Greek usage. So the word used for fish isn't the word for fish. Mm. The word used for fish is the word for relish. And so he's actually feeding them. I mean, if you read it hmm. literally, he's actually feeding them relish. Did they haul relish and up? On exactly. The they, so that, that it's a different word. Oh, wow. So but when he's feeding him, hmm. so it, it, it's oh, like wow. a, you have a piece gefilte of toast fish. and you have this. Yeah, I can't comment exactly. I'm not quite sure what gefilte fish hmm. is. It's like a fish spread. Okay. So that the but the relish, uh-huh. the relish. So as you know, if you've ever eaten in the Middle East, you have bread and then you may, you may have your, your main meal here and then you have these relishes around the edge so that you go, uh, uh, and oh, then yeah. you eat it. Right. And so the word here nice. is, this is really, he's really feeding them relish, but the word yeah. relish, again, in the context is that ends up being known as a sort of meal mm. and then into fish. And so it gets expanded, but the word literally 
was mm. relish. So, but it, it, but the fact Jesus feeding him relish it doesn't quite have the same spin. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, sounds like a hot dog without uh, the hot dog. Is so much in this, and it, I, I just say I think we didn't touch even that none dared ask who he was because they knew who he was. Right. I think you could do a whole thing mm. on that. You touched it. You touched that. I, I, mm. I think that's a sign of the resurrection again. Is the ambiguity of Jesus's corporeality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, okay, everybody, uh, we really appreciate your hanging in here with us uh, as we agree and disagree about things minute and things big. Uh, the scriptures are meant to feed us. Mm. That's what they are. They're meant mm-hmm. to feed us. And we hope that this podcast has fed you. Uh, as is usual here, we would love it if you would uh, subscribe to us and share and like and review and do all that sort of stuff. And, and grateful to those of you who do reach out to us for clarification. Uh, that's always uh, fun for us to, to see if we can clarify what always have to figure out what we said before we clarify. But anyway, so uh, if you do all that, I'm grateful to you and I'm grateful to you because uh, every week you two teach me and teach me and teach me some more. And I'm grateful to Megan and and Rob behind us who are the ones that really make this happen. So uh, peace be with you and uh, uh, happy coming of the third Sunday of Easter. God bless. Take care. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.